The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You're listening to the Season 5 reboot of Breakdown, The MacGyver Murder Case, a podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For additional information, photos, videos, and documents relating to the MacGyver prosecution, please go to ajcbreakdown.com. Join our Breakdown Facebook group for continuing conversations about the case. And follow us on Twitter at AJC Breakdown and at AJC Courts. Previously on Breakdown. I figured if he wanted to tell me what happened to her, hell, I knew what happened to her. He shot her in the back. Wake up. Text, wake up. You won't sleep tonight. Boom. And Diane said, Tex, what did you do? I've been shot. I expected that at that point in time, he would tell me how sorry he was and how it was a terrible, tragic accident and say how much he loved Diane, but I never heard that. The Tex McIver trial went on spring break last week. I don't know whether it went to the beach or just had a staycation. But the kids were out of school, so the court sent everybody out to recess too. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I have to tell you, I enjoyed having a respite from court last week. In the end, however, this wasn't a week off for you, and so it wasn't a week off for us. Here with Episode 9. Before trial adjourned, something highly unusual happened. Everyone knows that district attorneys and police officers are on the same team. The cops make the arrest. The DAs try to make it stick. They work hand in glove. At least, that's the theory. But that's not how it's working in the Tex McIver case. The Fulton County District Attorney's Office is acting as if the Atlanta police are the enemy. On the last day of testimony before the break, the prosecution called homicide detective Darren Smith to the stand. Then, they went after him. Prosecutor Clint Rucker all but said, you did a bad job investigating this crime. There are a thousand questions you should have asked, and we're going to list every one of them. Defense attorneys are usually the ones trying to slap cops around on the stand. You don't often see the prosecution wielding the club. Detective Smith was lead investigator on the Diane McIver shooting. He concluded it was an accident. Then the DA reviewed the file, reinvestigated the shooting, collected thousands of pages of documents and came up with malice murder. In other words, the DA said, the cops were wrong. This was no accident. Not exactly how you win friends and influence people in the police department, but the district attorney is obviously way past that. Here are some highlights of Smith facing a withering direct examination by Clint Rucker. Uh, My name is Darren Smith. I'm a detective with the Atlanta Police Department currently assigned to the homicide unit. Smith said he has been in the homicide division about six years. He has been lead detective on 44 cases. 
Rucker homes in on the 26-minute interview with Tex on September 28th. Did you ever ask him to demonstrate for you, say perhaps with a, a toy or a replica gun, how he was holding the gun at the time that it discharged? No. During the interview, did you ask him or ask Mr. Maples if it was possible if you guys could maybe jump in the car and he could maybe show you the route where the large number of homeless people were? No, I did not. During your conversation with him, did he indicate that at some point in time they, um, that he was no longer in fear? Yes, he did. Okay. And did you ask him, well, why didn't you give the gun back to your wife then? No, I did not. Did you ask him any questions about how many guns he owns or how frequently he fires guns? I did not. During your interview with him directly, did you ask him whether or not the gun was in single action or double action at the time that it discharged? Did you ask him that? No, I didn't believe it was a relevant question. Why not? The trigger was pulled, that I'm certain of. Whether it was in single or double action, to me, it wouldn't make any difference. Did you um, subpoena any financial records? Yes, I did. Did you uh, review and analyze those records um, to determine if there was anything of any significance in them to the investigation? Review them. Um, analyze would be a strong word for documents. Um, I looked at a bunch of numbers and I didn't really understand them. <laughs> money coming in, money going out. That's, that's, that's what I looked at. Here comes the masseuse again. Rucker makes it a point to let jurors know this. And can you uh, tell the jurors, was there anyone else that um, was there with the defendant, Mr. Maples, and the second attorney? Uh, there was a female there, I believe it was uh, Annie Anderson. The mystery masseuse. The one who was, quote, sleeping on the floor, unquote, of Texas bedroom and wearing Diane's boots just days after Diane died. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more. Of course, Annie Anderson hasn't taken the stand to tell her own story. I sure hope we'll hear from her. Ultimately, Rucker pilloried Detective Smith before a national audience. But there's one thing to keep in mind. Detective Smith could have it right that Diane's shooting was reckless but accidental. He might have it wrong, too, but the prosecution has not yet shown otherwise. The first thing Smith did was interview Danny Joe Carter, the only witness to the shooting. And Danny Joe told him something that may have influenced his view from the very beginning. And Tex was just late. Okay. He I mean, had gotten up really early and brought us both coffee upstairs and, mm -hmm. you know, made breakfast. And mm -hmm. um, so he was, he was a tired, he was tired. I gotcha. And Diane was busting at him because she said, you know, if he didn't wake up, he wasn't going to go to sleep tonight. Right. He wouldn't be asleep. Okay. So she was... She was fussing at him about waking up. Okay. We went, I'm sure he went to sleep with the gun in his hand. As you know, Smith formally charged McIver with reckless conduct and involuntary manslaughter felony grade on December 20th. That's three months after Smith caught the case. So we've seen the spectacle of the prosecution ripping into a cop, into one of its own. So now we'll see the spectacle of the defense doing its best to rehabilitate that same cop. It must have gone against Bruce Harvey's instincts to talk about what a great job Detective Smith did. I've seen him tear lead investigators to shreds on the stands, but not this one. Did you feel that you were um, up to the task? Yes, I did. Uh, did, you, did you feel that you were experienced enough to make determinations 
um, about the nature of the investigation? Yes. Did you have any hesitation in your ability to perform the required tasks in this investigation? No, I did not. Harvey asked Smith about why it was so important that he questioned Danny Joe right away. Harvey called her a percipient witness. A percipient person being someone who knows a great deal about a thing, also known as perceptive. In your uh, work, know that the sooner you get to a witness, the more likely it is that you're going to get an accurate statement of what happened, correct? That is correct. You said, we're just trying to figure out what happened, and if it's an accident, um, it's an accident, correct? That's correct. All right. Um, and Ms. Carter said to you, it's a horrible accident in response to your statement, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, and you said it sounds, it sounds like that's what it is. That is correct. Yes. Okay. Listen to how Harvey asks Smith about his investigation. You didn't uh, screech around corners so that things would be moved or anything like that. You did it carefully, right? That's correct. Like the experience detective that you are, correct? Yes. Smith confirmed that he didn't interview any of the nurses on duty at Emory that night. They had a lot to say, as you'll recall from the nurse's testimony. Too much to say, according to Smith. And he knows nurses. He's married to one. Smith called the ER nurses amateur sleuths and gossips, not sure which one of those is worse, and said he saw no reason to question them as a result. He did talk to the doc, Dr. Suzanne Hardy, and he thought that was sufficient. You also said, um, usually I go along with what the doctors say, right? That's correct. Um, not so much what the nurses say, um, right? Yes. Because you said to Danny Joe, in my opinion, the nurses are trying to be detectives, right? That's correct. So kind of junior detectives out there, you wanted to get it from the doctors, not necessarily the, the nurses, because the nurses, in your opinion, kind of a hotbed of rumor and innuendo, right? I don't know if I use those words. My wife will get mad at me. I'm sorry? <laughs> My wife will get mad at me. Well, she's a nurse. She's a nurse. Everybody but your wife. <laughs> but that's what you said. Right, that's correct. You know, and I, I'm not trying to disparage your wife, obviously, but I'm trying to get out what you said. And in, in, in talking to Danny Joe, you said, I'm going to go out and talk to the docs. The nurses, um, they're trying to be detectives. That's correct. Harvey reminds Smith what he also told Danny Joe. And you told Danny Joe at that, at the, that in that first interview with her that we have accidental discharge all the time, right? Yes. Okay. Where an officer, where an officer, a trained law enforcement officer, accidentally discharges or unintentionally discharges their weapon, correct? That's correct. So that's not, that's not an uncommon occurrence, correct? As far as our police department, no. But now Harvey suddenly stops asking questions and begins making statements. It was as if he wanted to make sure the jury knew exactly what the prosecution had done to Detective Smith. 
But in doing so, he went too far. We know this because the normally mild-mannered Judge McBurney slapped him down. Mr. Walker went through these things with you, and he went through these things in detail, but you know what he's saying. He's saying you did a crummy job. That's what he's saying. You didn't investigate it right. So I'm going through these things with you because you did investigate it right, didn't you? So don't answer that question. If you want to ask a question, then let's do that. That's not an appropriate question, but I invite you to continue your thorough and sifting cross-examination. Thank you. Yes, thorough and sifting. Apparently, the judge was already unhappy with Harvey for something Harvey had said earlier. We didn't hear it, and it's not on the courtroom tape, but we do get to hear what the judge says about it after a break. Uh, finally, don't call me your worship again. Okay? Thank you. Harvey did not say, yes, your worship. So nobody's happy in court just now. The judge isn't happy, the defense isn't happy, and Chief Assistant District Attorney Rucker certainly isn't happy. Here he is during the break. I'm on the record, Judge, in front of the jury, I would like to have the court sustain my objection, particularly to the last couple of comments and really statements made by Mr. Harvey regarding um, the credibility of this witness. Um, had I done something like that, uh, listen, we would be arguing about a mistrial. It was really inappropriate. It was improper. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he was at a point um, where, really, he was just trying to comment to the jury, really make a closing argument we about trying. He did. He did. Right. And, and it was really improper. Uh, I want my objection sustained on the record, and I would like you to instruct the jury with respect to those comments by Mr. Harvey. Um, he is one of the best lawyers I know. He's my friend. But it was not appropriate. It was really wrong especially in this context because there's so many folks watching and it wasn't right. My comment was directed to the detective because what the state is doing is they're impeaching the investigation. I'm not attacking the authorities of his investigation, the state is. So the tables are a little bit turned. Um, so um, I'm in an unusual position of saying I think you did a great investigation. And the state is in the position of saying, no, you didn't. Here are the things you didn't do. And that's precisely what they asked Detective Smith on direct examination. So I said the defense was unhappy. I get the distinct impression, however, that Mr. Harvey may have been quite satisfied. He'd made his point. But Rucker wouldn't let things stand. After Harvey's cross, Rucker went back in on redirect to get one more pound of flesh from the flayed Detective Smith. Rucker gets Smith to acknowledge that. He didn't talk to anyone at Texas Law Firm. It's his first case with financial records. That he got the wrong security video from Emory, not the one that showed the expedition pulling up to the ER. And that after interviewing Danny Joe and returning to Emory, he failed to check on whether Tex was still there. It turns out Tex was, and Smith lost a chance to talk to him right away. Rucker picks it back up and begins firing questions like darts at Smith's face. By the time Rucker was finished, it was clear that Smith had not done what the judge might call a thorough and sifting investigation. You never asked the defendant the question to show me how the gun went off. That is correct. Would you interview nurses at a hospital if you knew 
they had an opportunity to observe the defendant and like talk to him. Each situation's different. Would I have gone back and done it? Possibly. You know, you said to Mr. Harvey it was really important to talk to Andy Joe Carter, but but hey, wasn't it like important to talk? Yeah. Wasn't it important to talk to the defendant? Yes, it is. And you talk to Danny Joe Carter at 2.39 in the morning on the 26th? That's correct. How long did it take you to talk to the defendant? I coordinated that through who I assume was representing him. He was being representative by Steve Maples. I understand. I reached out that morning. I tried to get in touch with him. Tried to get in touch with his attorney. He called me later that day. Okay. But did you even walk into the lobby of the emergency room that night while you were there? I did not. I was under the impression from one of our detectives they had already left the hospital. Again, I, got you. I probably should have followed up and checked to make sure he was there or not there. I got you. I got you. We'll be right back. Page Paid is a criminal defense attorney in Atlanta. He, too, was struck by the way the state treated Detective Smith. I think the testimony of Detective Smith is going to be critical in the case. It's very unusual for the state to have to cross-examine uh, the lead detective, but that's exactly what's happened in this trial. I think the prosecutor has a good point. The detective really did not investigate this case like a homicide and basically took Tex McIver's word about what happened. Of course, that's great evidence for the defense. If the defense can get the jury thinking that a very experienced homicide detective looked at the evidence and made an initial evaluation that this was not murder, I think that really helps the defense's argument that it was an accident. As a defense lawyer, I think it is fantastic if you can get a law enforcement officer to basically agree with your theory that the facts and circumstances of the incident point towards it being an accident instead of a crime. That's gold in a case like this. Pate invokes the Trayvon Martin case in which the shooter was acquitted of all charges. And it reminds me of the detective's testimony back during the George Zimmerman trial where he believed Zimmerman's version of the events. I think that made a huge difference in that trial and I think it will make a huge difference in this trial. In many cases, a person can get away with murder if the state doesn't do a great job of presenting the evidence at the trial. We've talked to other members of the defense bar who think the DA is overdoing it. Too many witnesses, too many theories, too much for the jury to take in. Pate is definitely in that camp. I think the state has presented way too many witnesses and has effectively confused the jury by presenting inconsistent theories of what happened. A jury is going to expect the state's case to be rock solid and present proof beyond a reasonable doubt if they're going to convict someone of murder. And then there's my colleague, Christian Boone. He's covered the trial day in and day out for the AJC. Christian says Detective Smith failed to ask a vitally important question. One of the questions he didn't ask was about whether, whether the gun was cocked, and we're never going to know that answer. And that's, Darren Smith actually said in the stand, like, I didn't think it was important. And, well, there's really no question more important in this trial. And we're not going to have the answer to that. Well, let's talk about that. Here's an example of when, according to me, the prosecution totally wasted the jury's time. It has to do with the position of MacGyver's hands when the gun went off. Maybe you'll find this to be as ludicrous as I did. 
During his interview with the Atlanta police, Tex MacGyver is sitting at a table. He explains how the gun went off and puts his hands in his lap, gesturing. Rucker has taken a screen grab of that instant and blown it up to the size of a satellite photo. Rucker asks Smith to point at Tex's hands. This is not one of the tougher questions of the day, and Smith dutifully rises from the stand. He points at the poster image. That's his right hand. That's his left. Yep, found them both. The problem is this. Nobody said, Tex, show us where your hands were when you fired the gun. The exact position. On cross, Bruce Harvey goes right to it. Again, there were no measurements taken. There, there were no questions directly related to the, um, the actual contours of where he was sitting and how he was sitting. Is that correct? That's correct. And you didn't take that to be an exact, this is how it is and this is precisely what happened. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Even so, the prosecution has repeatedly used this photo as if it's documentary evidence of the exact position of Texas hands. Rucker trotted it out again when the state called its crime scene reconstruction expert. The witness, Michael Knox, put a rod through the hole in the back of the passenger seat and ran it through the hole in the front of the seat. This very simple bit of physics tells you a great deal. The path of the bullet, the angle at which it traveled, whether it was moving left to right, and so on. Rucker shows Knox his blow-up photo of Tex in the APD interview room. Uh, can you tell the jurors... Um, the position of the hands of the person we see in States 281A um, here, kind of in between the legs, this way with the fingers pointed downward. Can you tell the jury, is this hand position consistent or inconsistent with the trajectory that you found during your analysis? That would be inconsistent. Inconsistent. That's correct. It gets even goofier. Rucker then shows a blow-up of a photo of Steve Maples, MacGyver's attorney, at the same APD interview. It shows the position of Maples' hands as he explains what happened when the gun went off. But you're right, Maples wasn't even there. So he has no true idea where Texas' hands were. Yet here's Rucker showing this photo. He gets Knox, the crime scene expert, to say that the position of Maples' hands is inconsistent with the way the bullet went through the seat the way it did. Seriously? The inescapable conclusion. Steve Maples did not shoot Diane MacGyver. His hands were all wrong. I mean, come on. So, Harvey answers silly with silly. In his cross, Harvey projects a photo of Prosecutor Salita Griffin during her opening statement as she demonstrates how Tex fired the gun. In this photo, Griffin has her right arm extended at shoulder level, pointing a gun as if she's about to fire. Can you see what's projected on the screen in front of you? I can, yes. Um, you've just been asked a series of questions about what some people were using as sort of a informal demonstrative, correct? Yes. And you were asked a question about whether or not that's the position that you believed in your professional opinion the weapon was in. Um, when it was fired, all of which is essentially speculation. How about this picture? You think it was out like this? No, that, that would also be inconsistent. I wondered whether Knox could explain exactly what went on inside the expedition when Tex shot Diane in the back. Here he is talking about the path of the bullet. The positioning of the firearm is such that 
the trajectory moves right to left. If I'm, if, I'm, uh, if you can imagine me sitting in the back seat where Mr. McIver was, then the, the trajectory moves from my right uh, side toward uh, the seat where basically the, the uh, bullet hole would be kind of in the middle or maybe a bit to the left, but the direction of fire would be right to left relative to where I'm sitting and slightly upward from there. First possibility. Knox said the gun could indeed have been in Texas' lap as he claimed it was. Second possibility. Fire would have to be located either somewhere back by Mr. McIver's hip, somewhere up, not quite touching, but up in front of him or anywhere in between that, but along the line of that rod. Using a PowerPoint, Knox shows an animation he created. The vantage point is looking down at a figure in the rear seat of the SUV. The figure is holding a gun at his hip, and the gun is pointed at the front seat. It looks way more sinister than when the gun is lying in Tex's lap. But during his cross, Harvey makes this point. The right-hand elbow of the model that you have in your slide 54, um, you're looking down, but no door. That's correct. No measurements of the door. That's correct. That's a physical constraint that would prohibit the elbow from being in that position, isn't it? Yes. So now we don't know if it was possible for Tex to have had the gun at his hip. What can you tell us, Harvey asks. All we need to know is that the muzzle of the weapon was in line with the trajectory, correct? That's correct. So I guess at the end of the day, you can't say where it was. No, other than within those limits, that's, as I've described, that's, that's all I can tell. You can't tell us where it was, you can't tell us how it was held, correct? That's correct. Anything that you can tell us based upon your analysis that can either scientifically or otherwise tell us whether the shot was fired intentionally or unintentionally? No. Knox also testified that sometimes you can test a gun to determine whether it fired the bullet in single or double action. This would answer the pressing question posed by my colleague, Christian Boone. And can you tell the jury um, what were the results of that test if you did? In this case, you couldn't tell. The depths were very similar, so there would be no way to really discern whether the gun was fired single action uh, with the hammer cocked first or double action with the hammer not cocked first. When Knox stepped down from the stand, it seemed like we were left with more questions than answers. The prosecution put up more than 60 witnesses before the break, but don't worry, there are more. Here's Judge McBurney telling jurors before they recessed that the end of the trial is actually in sight. Uh, Mr. Rucker and his team have helped me understand that um, there's just not a whole lot of witnesses left. I don't think there are many people left in the world, but there are not a whole lot of witnesses left um, on the list of folks they expect to call. So far, the jury has heard from at least seven Corey employees where Diane was president, plus five police officers, five emergency room nurses, five lawyers, five GBI technicians, five friends of Diane McIver, some of whom were friends of Tex too, two ER doctors, two district attorneys investigators, and two Emory Hospital parking valets. 
And one of the valets, by the way, said he couldn't remember anything about the night in question. And that's not nearly all the witnesses. Um, it's been very long, needlessly long. That's the AJC's Christian Boone talking about his take on the trial. But uh, the prosecution's had a few hits, a few misses, um, a few witnesses who turned out to be almost more favorable to the defense. I think the uh, strongest thing for the uh, state has been some of the Texas behavior right after Diane's death. Incomprehensibly dumb to be asking about Social Security benefits and some of the other things that he did. But uh, as to the central question, I mean, had they proven it? I don't think so. It doesn't mean they can't finish strong because they've got uh, some witnesses that we expect to hear some very damaging things um, towards Tex. Christian thinks Tex could still be in trouble. Whether or not the state has proven that uh, the shooting was intentional, I think Texas is in some danger. Just because of his own behavior, I think he's, he's at risk of conviction at this point. The, the interesting thing in this, during this trial, is most people who have followed it think he's guilty. Um, and that Texas has only himself to blame for it. I know our colleague Mike Pachinik at Channel 2 did a, just a Twitter poll, and it was uh, two to one that Texas was guilty. We'll be right back. In episode 8, we told you we'd get back to the trigger pull. So here we are. The state called on Zachary Weitzel, a firearms examiner from the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. He demonstrated how he used a spring gauge to measure the pressure of the trigger. And here's what he found out. The single action on the gun, the simply dropping the hammer when the hammer's already cocked, is two and one quarter pounds of pressure. And then the double action, both Cocking and releasing the hammer requires 12 and one quarter pound to pull the trigger. There's no way around it. That's a big, big difference. But once again, Rucker does something I couldn't quite understand. He pulls a chair in front of the jury, sits down in it as if he's Tex in the back seat that night. If I just hold it in my hands like this, um, will it just go off? No. Um, if I... Uh, <coughs> sit down with it and hold it down here in my lap, will it just go off? No. Again, what in the world was Rucker doing? There's absolutely no contention that the gun just went off. The defense absolutely concedes that Tex pulled the trigger. Now don't get me wrong, Rucker and his team have presented a lot of circumstantial evidence against Tex so far in this trial, and Rucker has been a forceful and effective presence in the courtroom. But again, this demonstration with Weitzel seems like a complete waste of the court's time. There was also one moment when Weitzel was demonstrating pulling the trigger when the gun was in single action. It looked like he, yes, accidentally pulled the trigger at one point. Here he is. So if you were to pull the trigger, but then release the trigger, and I'll put my finger here so that you, I could feel it if it went through, it doesn't touch because you notice the trigger. Oops. Let me play that again. Listen carefully for the oops. Because you notice the trigger. Oops. It sure sounded like he said oops. I don't know if the jury picked up on it because the oops was so faint. But a YouTube video of it spread like a virus over the internet and it seemed to show how easy it could be to pull the trigger if the gun was cocked. Of course, we don't know whether the gun was cocked. 
and it seems pretty crazy to leave a cocked revolver in the console of your SUV. But I guess it's also possible Tex cocked it when he got the handgun from Diane. If it wasn't cocked, that 12 and a quarter pounds of pressure makes it far less likely this was an accidental discharge. Here's Prosecutor Clint Rucker finishing his questioning of Weitzel. Was your hand shaking when you were attempting to pull the trigger with that firearm in double action? Yes, a little bit. Why? Well, it's 12 and a quarter pounds, um, and I'm doing it with my fingers. So uh, for that, that's a relatively heavy poundage uh, for your trigger. Um, now, I should clarify that doing it quickly is doable. It's much more difficult to show you guys to do it slower. Um, but it's, it's designed to be heavier than the single action. Defense attorney Bruce Harvey asked Weitzel some final questions. As opposed to an accidental discharge, there is something that you know of that's called an unintentional discharge, correct? Right. And an unintentional discharge means that one, that one can put pressure on the trigger unintentionally and that the weapon can discharge, correct? Right. For, um, for a number of reasons, including being startled, correct? Right. I'm sure the jurors want to know everything they can about that trigger pull. And Judge McBurney granted an unusual request by the prosecution to let jurors pull the trigger and feel for themselves how much pressure it takes when the gun is cocked or when it's not cocked. McBurney said he would allow it when jurors are in deliberations. Here's attorney Esther Panich, who was closely following the case, about jurors getting to feel what it's like pulling the trigger in double action. Yeah, I think this is the piece of evidence. How does a gun go off accidentally? Can it go off accidentally? This is the ultimate issue for a lot of jurors. Let's put all that other motive and all that other noise aside. If it is impossible to discharge that weapon without making a real effort to do it, and a jolt coming out of a dream won't do it, then he's going away forever. If it is possible, then the jury really then needs to weigh in the motivation and see, kind of to tip the scales away from accident. Even if it's possible, it could be an accident. Next on Breakdown. And the defendant and his lawyer were sitting at a table. Then the lawyer gets up to leave. And it's just the defendant and Mr. Dickerson. And what he tells Mr. Dickerson is, you can get this case dismissed. And if you do, there's a large bonus in it for you. And I won't mind if you share it with the DA. Breakdown is reported and narrated by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallex. Sound design by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative in Atlanta. Original music composed and performed by Bo Emerson, Billy Kewen, and Chris Basta. Special thanks to Burt Roten, who lit the fire that became Breakdown. Special thanks as well to the AJC's editor-in-chief and podcaster, Kevin Riley, to Pete Corson, Monica Richardson, Mark Wallagor, and all the fine folks at the Journal-Constitution, plus Chris Basta and Chris Nicholson, a.k.a. C1 and C2, Buddy Hall, Josh Gaynor, and our good friends at WSB-TV and radio. Hello, this is a collect call from... Tex McIver. An inmate at... Fulton County Jail. 
Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.